We're all very, very different, but there is one thing that we all have in common. We were all stupid enough to enlist in the army. We're mutants. There's something wrong with us, something very, very wrong with us. Something seriously wrong with us. We're soldiers, but we're American soldiers. We've been kicking ass for 200 years. We're 10 and one. Two slackers enlist in the U.S. Army and find out that being soldiers is harder work than they thought. This week, we debate if people think Harry Potter is real, if anyone knows anything about Tintin, and if Stephen Baldwin can deliver a line better than John Candy. We also make a major show announcement before finding out if Stripes stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief, and joining me, as always, I can't seem to get a more professional podcast partner, but until then, I will settle for Alan Noah. I'm offended. Do you have, like, Craigslist ads or something, like, looking for a replacement? No, it's just kind of one of those, like, Alan and James in the morning, wah, wah, WKXR. That's just what we call in the business a riff. Oh, I feel like that's going backwards. I feel like terrestrial radio is so 1960s. Like, this is podcast. We're the future. We're at least, like, the 2010s. I could see, in a very interesting way, radio coming back. You know why? No idea why. So if you go on YouTube, you go on Twitch, like who ultimately controls what you get to say? YouTube, Twitch. If you broadcast yourself on an FM station or an AM station, there's no stopping you once you broadcast out whatever you want to say. Except for the FCC. I remember when we were in college, Tufts University, they had hooked up their college radio antenna to like the uh, subway tracks and turning the power up all the way. They were able to basically have an enormous antenna and broadcast like well outside of their uh, known radius. People just broadcast it. It's called pirate radio. Right, but then it gets shut down by the FCC, as opposed to podcasts, which any knuckleheads can just put on the internet, like us. Hello. I mean, that's the easier, better way to do it. I guess you're right, Alan. Uh, power always to am. the radio disc jockeys, whom I believe we are the descendants of, Al. Not literally, though. No, I mean the spiritual, uh, the medium of, uh, you know, audio arts, if you will. We come from a proud line of people who talk into microphones, I guess. Uh, But speaking of the way that we talk into microphones, this episode is actually kind of noteworthy because this is the last episode that we are going to record remotely. Next week, I am going to come into your Manhattan apartment and we will record this podcast 
sitting at the same table, looking at each other, breathing the same COVID-free air, it's happening. And what are we going to do for that very special occasion? We will tell you at the end of this episode. Yeah, we're going to make you listen to us talk about stripes first, but you are probably going to do that anyway. I will correct you on one thing, Al. Starting next week will be the first time you will be coming over to play video games with me. And before we play those video games, we will record a podcast. So you're more excited about the video games? Um, I have not turned on the Super Nintendo since you were here. What are we playing? We beat Super Mario World. We might do Donkey Kong Country. Are you kidding me? That's the hardest game ever. We'll never beat it. We'll do it. But uh, looking, looking forward to it. Same here. But today we're going to talk about Stripes, which is a Bill Murray comedy classic. I think it's considered a, a comedy classic. I have seen this movie many times because my father loves this movie. So I've watched it many, many times with him. But you said that you had never seen it before. How did you never get around to seeing Stripes? There's just a number of comedy classics that I have never seen. I'm going to tell you three films I have never seen in my life. And you're going to be like, what? Eh, bleh, bleh. And I think I'm quoting you exactly what you're going to be saying. We'll see about that. <laughs> I've never seen Blazing Saddles or Young Frankenstein. Those are the uh, Mel Brooks classics. And the other comedy classic I've actually never seen is I have never seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail. What? Eh, blue, eh, blue, eh, eh. <laughs> oh, you're right. You totally call that. Oh, my God. Well done. That was <laughs> impressive. That was impressive uh, predicting the future there, James. 250 or so podcasts later, you know, you, you get to know somebody. So, um, As a Jew, I think it's funny that you haven't seen some of these Mel Brooks classics and as a nerd, it's crazy that you haven't seen Monty Python. We will get to all of those movies. We will correct that uh, omission in your film-watching history. You also hadn't seen This is Spinal Tap and Caddyshack, which are also considered comedy classics, right? That's right. I I've also never seen uh, other movie classics. I've never seen Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, The Maltese Falcon. I've never seen some of these like classics from yesteryear. You know, Stripes is basically like... There's a band that you like, and you've listened to a lot of their stuff, and you know there's an album of theirs, like, right in the era that you like of theirs, so you figure there's probably a good album there, but you just never got around to it. That, to me, was always Stripes. Like, I knew that this was peak Bill Murray. I knew that this was peak John Candy. I also knew it wasn't really as talked about as much as Caddyshack, so that it, this movie was not overhyped to me, but I knew that it was a well-received movie, generally. When people talk about it online over the years, I seem to see that people like it, but not overhyping it to the point where, you know, maybe it's one of these just rabid fan bases. So I'd never seen it, but, uh, you know, I was interested to see it because it was just on the list. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons that this movie is so revered is that it's one of only a handful of times where Bill Murray has worked with Harold Ramis. And the other instances where that happened are definitely like highly beloved movies, Ghostbusters, 
I guess to a lesser extent, Ghostbusters 2, uh, and Groundhog Day. And they were a hell of a team, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis. And if you like Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day, then you should see Stripes and see the other time when they work together. So to recap this movie for anyone else who hasn't seen it, uh, it's about John Winger, who's played by Bill Murray, and he's a cabbie who's down on his luck. After he loses his job, his car, and his girlfriend, he decides to enlist in the U.S. Army with his close pal Russell Ziski, played by Harold Ramis. When they get to basic training, they find themselves in a platoon of misfits. Winger butts heads with Drill Sergeant Holka, but after Holka is injured, Winger leads the troops in their graduation. The entire company is then sent on a secret mission in Europe. When their fellow soldiers accidentally find themselves in enemy territory, Winger, Russell, and their new MP girlfriends save the day. So this movie came out 40 years ago in June of 1981. Uh, You and I were a few months shy of our second birthday, so we did not see it in the theater. But uh, was it a hit at the box office? Uh, you know, it came out on June 26, 1981 with a $9, $10 million budget, and it opened at number four with $6.1 million. We've now recorded three of the five of these top five. Today, Stripes, that came at number four. Number one is a sequel. This film was the number one film from 1981 domestically at the box office. Oh, Superman? Yeah, this was Superman 2. So Superman gotcha. 2 um, was still at number one. It had opened the week before. And uh, number two, another film we're definitely going to review is uh, The Cannonball Run. Uh, number three, a James Bond film for your eyes only. And we are going to be reviewing some James Bond films uh, later this year. So, you know, you have to stay tuned to see which ones we do. Number four was Stripes. And number five, this was the third film in a trilogy that we reviewed. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is the second one of that trilogy. We both liked it, but I didn't like the third one. And you were, if I remember, you were shocked that I did not like the third one. Oh, uh, the Muppet movie. So yeah. so it was uh, The Great Muppet Caper. Correct. Yeah, yeah. This film, it opened at number four with $6.1 million on its way to $85 million. Wow. Yeah, that's a 14 times multiplier. You know, it made 14 times its opening weekend. And guess where it uh, landed in 1981? I already told you Superman 2 came in at number one. And from the implication of what I'm saying, guess where Stripes landed, Al? Number two? That is correct. $85 million for the number two spot. That's really impressive for a relatively cheap movie with a lot of relatively unknown actors. Bill Murray was probably the best known of this troupe because he was on Saturday Night Live and he had been in Meatballs. Uh, and Caddyshack also came out in 81. I'm not sure which one came out first. So Bill Murray is like the bigger name, but no one had seen Harold Ramis before. I mean, maybe if you were a comedy nerd, you knew he wrote or co-wrote Animal House and Meatballs, but he wasn't a household name. I think this was one of John Candy's first big roles. A lot of these guys were from SCTV, uh, Second City, but you know, outside of like hardcore comedy fans, people didn't know most of these guys. I think everything came together here because I think it's just a solid cast. And this is a kind of accomplished crew. They haven't all worked together, but it's kind of like kind of Animal House in the Army. First off, I just want to correct myself. Caddyshack came out in 1980, so the year before this movie. Uh, But Animal House, Meatballs, Stripes, there's a lot of 
commonality there with uh, Harold Ramis and also Ivan Reitman. So it's from the people who brought you Animal House and Meatballs. So yeah, like that's going to put some butts in seats because people loved Animal House. People liked Meatballs. uh, People liked watching Bill Murray on SNL. So this movie starts with John Winger, Bill Murray's character, and he's a taxi driver who's having a really terrible day. He gets his fare from this really snobby rich woman who needs him to take her to the airport, and she's in a hurry, and he has to carry all of her luggage, and she just doesn't like him, and she's yelling at him and berating him, and he quits in the middle of the fair on a bridge. He, like, takes the keys and throws them into the river, abandons the car, and all I was thinking was that, man, I don't know about in other cities, but in New York City, you would not do that. Like, having your own taxi is really expensive. Those medallions are so expensive. I believe this movie was shot in Kentucky, so I don't know what city this is supposed to be, but maybe there it's not that big of a deal to have a taxi. I don't know. I mean, I was thinking a similar thing. I wasn't thinking about having owned a uh, a medallion car himself. I was thinking about how in New York, basically these guys, they pay like 700 bucks a month to rent out taxis from people that own what are called medallions. Every medallion can have like 10 taxis on it or something. The first like $700 you make as you drive around, that's just paying for the rent. And then, you know, however long you want to work, that's how much money you'll make. That's pretty much how taxis work in New York. So when he basically threw the keys in, I was thinking, yeah, maybe he owns a taxi, but I was like, dude, like, this is about to get a lot worse for you because, you know, you just threw away the keys to a car that probably doesn't belong to you. That's a good point. Also, why not just throw her luggage into the river? Like, that hurts her more than it hurts him. Throwing the keys is going to hurt him. Oh, I absolutely thought that's what he was going to do. I thought he was just going to say, I'm sick of uh, driving you anywhere. And I was going to say, you know, good for you, man. You, you deserve to be treated with dignity and just, you know, pull over to the side and take her luggage out. She'd be like, why, I've never been this insulted. But that's not what happened. Like He just walks away and throws his keys away. <laughs> I really like your old lady voice, James. That was very good. For fans of Tintin, and there are millions of you out there, this old lady reminded me of, like, Bianca Castafiore. Like, I mean, you don't even know that character, Al, but it's like your classic, like, snotty, rich lady from The Great Gatsby. Like, a total, she's a piece of work, you know? Nobody knows who that is. Nobody. Zero people. The the writer of Tintin doesn't know who the hell you're talking about. <laughs> if you know who Tintin is, write Al at Test of Time Pod. It's like knowing Superman, Al, like outside of America. Everyone knows Tintin. No. But, uh, you know, this winger guy, he goes home to his girlfriend, and there's a pretty gratuitous nudity shot here. The first, but not the last. They quickly get into a fight, and uh, she walks out on him. Right. She complains that he watches Rocky and Bullwinkle every morning, and he listens to Tito Puente albums. I think, as far as timely references go, those aren't the worst that they could have picked. I mean, I've never watched an episode of Rocky and Bullwinkle, but I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever listened to a full Tito Puente album, but he was on The Simpsons, so I know who he is. That's exactly what I was going to say. I only know Tito Puente because of his uh, Senor Burns episode on The Simpsons, which was fantastic, by the way. Sure. I do love the line that Winger says when his girlfriend walks out, when he says, you can't go. All the plants are going to die. Like, that's his, like, last-ditch effort to get his girlfriend from leaving. I just thought that was really, really funny. 
We also meet his buddy, Russell. He's an ESL teacher. That's English as a second language. And he's teaching this room full of uh, presumably, uh, you know, new immigrants to America. Right. And it's his first day on the job. And he's asking people if they know any English. And someone raises their hand and he says, son of bitch, shit. And then everyone in the class repeats it. Son of bitch, shit, in unison. And it's a pretty lowbrow joke, but it's really funny just the way that they all kind of chime in. And then later he's teaching them to do run run and they're all singing in unison. You know, it's not like high comedy, but this works. It's very funny. Yeah, I mean, I wish he could have taught them a song with a little better English. I mean, I guess do run, 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 the do run, run, but it's not teaching them any English at all. <laughs> like, at least teach them, like, some fun, like, you know, rock song or something, but English words. True. But that is a moot point uh, because we now get to these two buddies, and they're kind of down on their luck. They don't really like their life. Uh, you know, Winger, he's got nothing going for him. His windows keep getting broken from ill-thrown basketballs. <laughs> um, and... They finally decide to join the army. Right. And it's Winger's urging that does it. When they go to the recruiter, uh, the recruiter asks if they are homosexuals, which is a question that was asked back then. And Winger's like, you mean flaming or hmm? And then Russell says, we're not gay, but we're willing to learn. And the recruiter is just like, okay, these guys think they're funny. And he's like, I'll check that off as a no. They sign up and they're older than most army recruits. Earlier, Winger says that he's uh, almost 30. And, you know, you imagine that most recruits are in their early 20s or maybe late teens. But they get to this bus stop where they're on their way to the base, and that's where they meet these two military police officers, or MPs, and they are the love interests. There's one for Winger, there's one for Russell, and their names are Stella and Louise. Yeah, and we also meet the recruits once we get to boot camp. We meet uh, Captain Stillman. He's kind of an asshole. Then we meet Sergeant Holka. He's kind of an asshole, too, but at least he's like a good soldier. Like uh, Captain Stillman, he's he's a total fuck-up. Then we also meet some of the recruits in the platoon, or I guess you call them maybe the company. Uh, there's this guy, Francis, but he goes by Psycho because he's Psycho. The scene where he is explaining, like, who he is, and he's like, if anyone touches my stuff, I'll kill you. If anyone comes near me, I'll kill you. My name is Francis, but you call me Psycho. If anyone calls me Francis, I kill you. And then Holka just says, lighten up, Francis. <laughs> and that is one of many lines in this movie that my dad quotes all the time, you know, two people who are not named Francis. But, you know, if someone's getting a little worked up, he'll just say, lighten up, Francis. And honestly, that's a good thing to say to someone who needs to calm down. Yeah, you know, it's interesting why other people uh, decide to join the army. You have Ox, who's played by John Candy, and he decided to join the army because it was a free government paid for weight loss camp as basically the way he sees it. Yeah. Speaking of lines that my dad likes, when they're at the bus stop, Ox goes up to one of the MPs and says, excuse me, stewardess, is there a movie on this flight? And then like cracks himself up because they're getting on a bus. And then once they get to boot camp and he sees Stillman, the John Larroquette character, he just looks him up and down and says, how's it going, Eisenhower? 
like honestly like those lines on their own out of context aren't funny but like delivered by john candy they're really really funny uh but winger starts like talking back to hulka right away he's like cracking jokes and hulka doesn't appreciate it and Hulka says that there's going to be a 10-mile run the next morning, and then the next morning comes. Winger's like, oh, it's too early. Let's do it later. And Hulka's like, okay, well, now the five-mile run we were going to do is going to be a 10-mile run, and it's all your fault. And everyone's like, oh, we hate you, Winger. But that doesn't make any sense because Hulka the night before said it was going to be a 10-mile run. So he clearly just lowered it to five only so he could then raise it back up to 10 and blame someone for it, which I guess is like a thing that they do in the military to get everyone to turn on the one guy who's being a loudmouth to get that loudmouth to fall in line. It makes sense, but I don't know, just like seeing it back to back in the movie, I was like, that could be a continuity error. Yeah, I mean, you get into this uh, shtick where, you know, the, the whole crew sucks. There's a whole montage about how they're doing all the training exercise, and they totally suck. Right. So, like, as Winger and Hulka keep butting heads, eventually Hulka is like, all right, you and I are going to talk. Step into my office. And they go into the latrine, which is, you know, where they can talk in private. And Hulka just gets right in Winger's face and is like, I've seen a lot of guys like you in the army. You come and you go. I bet you'd like to take a swing at me. Why don't you take a swing at me? And it sort of kind of made me think of a similar scene in Biloxi Blues, which we watched a, a while back. But the quote-unquote fight between Winger and Hulka is really, really funny. I think just because Winger takes one swing that Hulka very easily dodges and then punches Winger in the gut once and like instantly incapacitates him. It's like two punches are thrown, one punch lands, and like that's it. And apparently this was a scene that the studio really didn't like and didn't want in there. But Harold Ramis really fought to keep it in. And the interesting thing about it is that it's a serious scene. There's no jokes in it. I think the punching is kind of funny, but Bill Murray is acting serious. And it is almost a little out of place in this comedy, but it works because it shows you like just how serious Hulka is. And uh, I think uh, Harold Ramis was right to leave this scene in there. Or Reitman. I guess Ivan Reitman, uh, he directed it. I mean, you know, superior officer punching his inferior officer, that could never happen. But I think what he's trying to do is he kind of goes through the loophole where he's like, I need you to take a swing and then I'll beat the shit out of you. You know, like right. he's not going to strike his inferior officer. So, you know, it is showing him kind of like, I'm the man here. It's interesting that you compare this to Biloxi Blues because, you know, you watch a lot of these army films and it's the same scenes over and over, but just different reactions, different outcomes. Because I don't know if you've ever seen Full Metal Jacket, but yeah. in that film, when the whole platoon turns on the guy that they have to double their, uh, you know, the calisthenics because of his fuck ups, you know, they beat the shit out of him. And then, you know, really, really bad things happen after that. And right. in Bloxy Blues, Christopher Walken, he very easily could have just pulled a trigger and murdered him on the spot. And the audience really doesn't know if that's going to happen. In this film, at least, we know this is probably more lighthearted and there's not going to be a Full Metal Jacket or Biloxi Blues type, uh, you know, anxious situation. 
Right, right. And after this happens, Winger is still getting on Hulka's case. They're doing like a rope climbing exercise and one of the soldiers can't do it. And Hulka's screaming at him. And Winger says, you know what? He says he couldn't do it. Why don't you do it, man? And Hulka kind of takes the bait. And he's like, I'll show you that I can do it. I'm an old guy, but watch me. And he goes up to the top of this thing. Meanwhile, Stillman, who is incompetent, is like trying to prove like how cool he is and how in charge he is. And he has one of these young recruits fire a shell into somewhere where it shouldn't go. And it accidentally knocks down Hulka, knocking him to the ground from a pretty decent height. I don't know. I'm bad at estimating these things. 20 feet, 30 feet, something like that. I don't know. Oh, it was two, three stories up. And, uh, you know, it's one of these mortar shells that the soldier's like, uh, sir, I should probably calculate where this is going to hit. And Stillman's like, no, that's for losers. Fire. And I do love uh, the line when uh, Holka, he's on the ground and he's injured. You don't even know if he's alive or dead. But once you see he's alive, Ox goes to him and he just says, Sergeant, does this mean we're through for the day? <laughs> it's so great. It is really, really great. I mean... It's fun to imagine an audience that doesn't know John Candy watching this. Like, you could imagine that this guy is going to be in a lot of very funny movies in his future. Because, like, every line he has in this movie is just, like, gold. I think they're all delivered so well. Right, and they're not inherently funny lines. Like, when you're reading the screenplay, Sergeant, does this mean we're through for the day? No offense to him, but let's just pick uh, Stephen Baldwin. He's not delivering that line the same way John Candy does. I don't want to start a beef with Stephen Baldwin. Cut that out. Oh, no, I'm not editing that out. I'm leaving that in. And Stephen Baldwin is coming after you, and you only have yourself to blame. Maybe I think Stephen Baldwin is such a good actor, he would, like, overdo it, and it would just be so serious to him, and he'd be like... Sergeant, does this mean we're through for the day? You know, maybe in more of a Charlton Heston kind of delivery. Maybe. I'll let you and uh, Stephen Baldwin work that out. But anyway, the next scene, this is a scene with a lot of nudity, but at least nudity here at least makes sense. Here the boys go to a strip club called the Pom Pom, but they also have a mud wrestling pit that you could apparently, like auction off the prize to be able to wrestle one of the girls and ox winds up uh bidding and successfully bidding to wrestle all four girls at once yeah did you notice who the mc is in that scene no i didn't who is it it's an actor named dave thomas not to be confused with the wendy's guy different dave thomas he's also in the uh, sc tv troupe he was in a movie that we're definitely going to review on the podcast called strange brew where he co-starred with rick moranis uh who we love so that, that shouldn't be a tough sell for you but he's here only because you know he knows some of these other sc tv guys but the joke in this scene is basically that these women who are wrestling Ox, John Candy's character, they're not in it to be like fun and playful and silly. They're like actively trying to hurt Ox. And the way he quote unquote fights back is he just rips off all of their bras. And the joke kind of doesn't work only because the women are covered in mud and it's kind of hard to tell that they're topless and also like they're in a strip club. So you would probably see them topless anyway. I just felt like the joke didn't really read that well. 
I mean, I thought the joke was going to be that obviously this big, huge guy is going to be able to, you know, wrestle these four girls. But it just kind of came across that they just do like, hi-ya! Like he'd fight back a little bit, but it was more like you'd push them out of the way. And I see where they're going. I don't think this is the kind of film where you want to see him like, you know, fight with these four women. But um, yeah, he does get his ass kicked. Right. So then the cops raid this place for some reason. It's not really clear, but it's not just regular cops. It's also MPs. And the two ladies that Russell and Winger met earlier are there and they take them separately. And they're maybe just going to let them go. But then they have to check in on this general's house and Winger runs right in and they start flirting. And it turns out that, yeah, they kind of have crushes on each other. Although Stella says that she's in love with Winger, like because Winger asks her like, oh, you're in love with me, right? I was like, well, it's not love. I mean, you're just like attracted to each other, which is cool, fine, but don't say that you're in love. There is a joke that doesn't stand the test of time when he's like trying to be sexy and playful. He puts her on the stove and then is like moving a spatula between her legs and says, you need the Aunt Jemima treatment. Obviously, no one thought about that in 1981, but- you know, obviously that brand name doesn't stand the test of time. What do they call it now? It's like something about like a a wheat mill or something. It's going to be renamed the Pearl Milling Company. So the Pearl Milling Pancake Mix, that's what it's going to be. Okay. But after this happens, you know, because all the guys were arrested, Stillman basically tells all the other recruits they're going to have to redo basic training. And then... Winger and Russell are like, whatever, we can cram. We'll do a great job at graduation. When's graduation? It's in a couple hours. All right, we can cram for it. And this leads into a motivational speech by Winger, by Bill Murray, which is reminiscent of the inspirational speech he gives in Meatballs, also reminiscent of the speech that John Belushi gives in Animal House when everyone's just down on their luck and ready to give up, and then a strong character says, nope, we're not giving up. This is the formula for these kind of films at this point. Absolutely, absolutely. I love this speech. I mean, I love Belushi's in Animal House. I love Bill Murray's in Meatballs. And I really love Bill Murray's speech in this movie. He basically says that Americans are like mutts. We're the rejects from every other country. But there's no animal that's more faithful, more loyal, or more lovable than the mutt. I personally have had mutts in my life, and I think that's true. Your sister's dog was a mutt, right? Oh, yeah. Mutts are great. Yeah, everyone loves mutts. And he also says that, you know, we're all crazy and weird and stupid, but we all have one thing in common. We all joined the U.S. Army, and that means that there's something wrong with us. There's something very, very wrong with us. Another line that's in my head that I've heard my dad say a million times. I think I've also referenced this line to you in another episode. I don't remember what, but he says that we're the American Army. We've been doing this for 200 years. We're 10 and 1 which is obviously a reference to the Vietnam War. I forget if it was Ivan Reitman or Harold Ramis who was very anti the Vietnam War, and this was their not-so-subtle dig at that war, and I guess a quasi-political statement. But it's also just very, very funny. Yeah, and they wind up having a you know a big uh, training montage where they're really trying to cram, and the next thing you know, they're all asleep. 
and it's graduation and all of the platoons, all the cadets that are graduating, they're all marching in uniform and everyone's in line and Stillman's like, where are those turkeys? And uh, we cut to those guys. Uh, They oversleep, but they wake up like just as the graduation ceremony is ending and they start running through campus. And I really like that they don't seem to know where to go. They really are like, I don't know where this place is. And I thought that was very funny. Yes, and it's also funny because the MPs are like in the audience. They're like, where are they? Maybe they couldn't find the graduation. And the other one says, it's right in front of the barracks. How could they miss it? Of course, though, they're not sleeping in the barracks. They're sleeping uh, in the hangar or wherever they were training. Uh, But they get to the graduation, and this is another just classic Bill Murray scene. It's right after the, the motivational speech, you know, just a couple minutes later. But this is where he leads the cadets in their display of everything they've learned. You know, they move the guns up and down and they do their salutes. And everything he says is really funny. He's like, razzle dazzle. And then the general who's there asks what happened to their sergeant. And Bill Murray replies, Float up, sir! And then the entire crew says in unison, Yeah, it's very funny. And I had read somewhere that the army had actually worked with the filmmakers for for whatever reason. And I think it was probably in the army's interest to do so because I, I don't think the U.S. Army had the best reputation at this point. At least for, like, young men who are thinking about joining the army. Can you imagine you're seeing probably all these 18-year-olds from Vietnam are now, like, 28. And they may have one leg or, you know, you're seeing all these young people like this. People don't have the best image of the army at this time. And this is like, oh, look, this is all these guys. It's kind of like camp. And uh, these guys are singing razzle-dazzle. That's a fact, Jack. And, you know, the that kind of cool commander, he goes to uh, the other guys and he goes, these are the young go-getters I've been looking for. Like, kids, this is the new army. And they will use that term later, which my guess is they were trying to make uh, this film, like, show that it could be a little bit less lighthearted. You're not going to war. You're not dying. You know, they start this whole Navy, see the world. You know, I think that's what they're really trying to do after Vietnam. That's my guess. Well, I mean, it did work. Army recruitment figures did go up by 10% after this film came out. This movie is kind of attributed to some of that success. It's funny because when you look at it now, you're like, why would the army like this movie? It kind of shows them in sort of a bad light, but I don't really think it does. I think you could definitely make the argument that it shows the army as sort of like you're saying, a fun place and an interesting place. And it also does in the end, I'm getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but Winger and Russell start off the movie without direction. And in the end, they find purpose and they find direction in their lives. So, you know, the army does give them something. Right. You know, America and Hollywood, certainly, they would tell you for a long time, almost kind of like to fix a man up, you could really send him to the army. But, um, you know, I think this is, in a way, a marketing film. I hear what you're saying. I don't think it's like over the top propaganda. I mean, I kind of felt like 
Pearl Harbor was, you know, very like, rah, rah, join the army, be all you could be. And even Space Camp, which we watched last week, that to me really felt like NASA's great. Look at how wonderful NASA is. To me, this movie didn't feel like over the top with that. So it didn't really bother me. Oh, you know, I'll say that I don't think this film, unlike Pearl Harbor or those kind of films, I think you could translate this film into any language. And this could be a Polish film about the Polish army. I mean, this is a film about the military, not necessarily the U.S. military. And I think it's more about when I say the army's fun, I think it's more about like, look at the brothers you're going to meet and and the friends. And yeah, you may meet some pretty ladies, too, because, you know, they all look like a a Sean Young in 1981, they have a really, really good time. I'm sure a lot of people saw Harry Potter and, you know, they really want to go to boarding school and maybe, you know, it's not all (laughs) wizards and stuff because, you know, you see enough boarding school sounds fun. You get to like have sleepovers every night with your friends and stuff. I really thought you were going to say that after people saw Harry Potter, they really wanted to become like actual wizards. And I was worried that you thought Harry Potter was real and that we were going to have to have a really uncomfortable conversation. But I'm glad you went in a different direction. <laughs> um, but but getting back to the plot of this movie. So the general who sees the graduation and is really impressed with Winger and his crew, he says, yeah, these guys are the go-getters I've been looking for. They're going to go on my special project. And the special project is about this EM-50 urban assault vehicle which basically just looks like a Winnebago, but it's like a tactical armed thing. And there's this secret mission in Europe that they have to go to. And basically their job is kind of just to babysit it, or maybe there's going to be like some public unveiling. I didn't really get exactly what they were doing with this thing in Europe, but Winger and Russell are bored and they decide that they're going to go visit their girlfriends who are stationed in West Germany. Do they say West Germany or do they just say Germany? I forget. I feel like a couple times they just say Germany and the other one would just be East Germany. You know, like there's Korea and North Korea. You don't necessarily always say South Korea. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, But yeah, so they like basically steal this thing. Then Stillman finds out about it and they go after these guys looking for it. And Holka's back. Uh, He's fine after his fall. And Holka tells Stillman like, yeah, you know, we've got specialists. Let's go after them. But Stillman doesn't want that because then he's afraid he's going to look bad. So he leads the mission to find these guys and they accidentally make a wrong turn and end up in Czechoslovakia where they are captured by Soviet soldiers. And, you know, that does not stand the test of time because in 1981, Czechoslovakia was uh, under Soviet control and that is no longer the case. So um, just from a geopolitical standpoint, I guess that doesn't stand the test of time. It just touches that line of the Iron Curtain and like there's a little bit of a skirmish. We're not really going to have it be, you know, all out war or anything, but there's going to be a little skirmish with the Iron Curtain and they get behind enemy lines. So there has to be a rescue mission. And so, you know, it's up to the boys and uh, they decide to uh, take the EM-50 and they go into Czechoslovakia. And not only are they able to rescue everyone, you can see where some of the budget went and they do some James Bond kind of uh, little stunts here where the EM-50 it shoots out all these missiles at the Czechs and you know it's got a couple tricks up its sleeve 
Yeah, there's like some explosions and stuff. And it kind of made me think a little bit about Midnight Run, which we talked about recently, where some of those action scenes didn't really have stakes because you don't really expect anyone to die. And I didn't really expect anyone to die in this movie, but there's like machine guns and fires and explosions. And they do take care to point out that like, when they blow up a tower, you see the guy running away and like, oh, his butt's on fire. Like, he's fine. Like, he didn't die. He's okay. There are these two guards who are like at the border and it's a running gag where one of them is like holding coffee and then something shocking happens and he spills the coffee on the other guy's face. Did you happen to recognize that actor, by the way? No, I didn't. Who was that? He's in a show that I know you love. But it's easy to not recognize him in this role. Uh, he is the dad from Freaks and Geeks, Mr. Weir. Oh, yeah, 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 that's right. He was also in like the SCTV gang. That's why he's here. I'm rewatching Freaks and Geeks with my son. And I was like, wait a second, is that Mr. Weir? And it is. So, you know, fun fact. So they save the guys, and that's pretty much the end of the film. And, you know, sort of like your uh, Animal House, there's sort of these stills that show you what happened to each of the uh, characters. You know, same thing we saw in 9 to 5, and I guess the 80s like doing this a lot. Yeah, I mean, some of these jokes I don't think are the strongest. Like, Hulka retires and then opens a fast food franchise called the Hulka Burger. I mean, that kind of comes out of nowhere. Stella is on the cover of Penthouse, which isn't really funny. I mean, it's just kind of lazy. Like, she's a pretty woman, so she ends up on the cover of Penthouse. The funnier joke is then the next cover is Ox, who's on the cover of Tiger Beat. Like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Um, Winger is on the cover of News World, and it's like, meet the future of the American army. Can the world survive? Like, that's kind of a good gag. Stillman is reassigned to some station like in the Arctic Circle, which is a callback to earlier in the movie. Someone threatens him with that. But I mean, the implication is that Winger and Russell are going to have careers in the army and, you know, they've got direction. They've got purpose in their lives now, thanks to the army. And that's where the movie ends. So, James, I'm really curious to find out if you think Stripes stands the test of time. It's the analogy I said earlier. It's like when there's a band you like, and then there's just an album that you never listen to, and then you finally put it in, and you're like, all right, you know, that's a good time. That's exactly what this film was to me. This was a fun time. I am not mortified I haven't seen this film before and I haven't had to experience it. It was perfectly fine. I think watching this film in 1981 in a crowded theater would have probably been a much better experience than I got. But um, I did catch what was funny. You know, there were some outdated things. Yeah, you know, the references to uh, Harry Krishna's. And Harry Krishna's... It just doesn't stand up at all. So, you know, there's these jokes that fall flat. You know, I'm not going to say that this film is brilliant, but it's funny. It's got, you know, some wonderful John Candy. And, oh, I miss that man so much. And, you know, Bill Murray, I miss this man so much. Because, you know, this Bill Murray is different than the Bill Murray we have now. We would never see the Bill Murray we have now do a role like this. You're never seeing another Bill Murray performance like this. So, you know, I I liked seeing that. And 
John Larroquette, he's a great actor. Uh, the Army people were great. The supporting characters were good. Judge Reinhold, uh, surprisingly forgettable in this film. Not that he was bad in the film. I just, when I saw him, I go, oh, Judge Reinhold. I love seeing him in an 80s film. But I can barely remember anything about him in this film. This was actually his first major movie, and the original pitch for this movie was Cheech and Chong in the army. The studio bought the pitch, and Cheech and Chong were into it, but they wanted like a huge amount of the back end or like Harold Ramis's future career or Ivan Reitman's future movies. Anyway, it's obviously not a Cheech and Chong movie, but like a lot of the stoner jokes just went to Judge Reinhold's character. Like at the bus stop, he's like, hey, man, are you holding? You want to hold something for me? It's very Cheech and Chong-esque. But you're right. Like after that, he doesn't really have much uh, memorable moments. No, but overall, the platoon is fun. You know, it's your formula. They suck in the beginning. They come together with a speech. And I'm a sucker for this formula when it's done well. So, you know, I'm going to say that uh, Stripes does stand up. It does not rank in the pantheon of comedy classics. But if you like these kind of 80s films, this was fun. I was not a fan of some of the so-called classics like Caddyshack and uh, Airplane. I did have a good time with this. But what about you, Al, because you've revisited some of these films, like Robin Hood Men in Tights and Airplane, and films that were hysterical to you at uh, 10 years old, and you did not find funny on review. So what do you think? Does Stripes still hold up? Does it stand the test of time? Well, I agree with you that the cast in this movie is amazing. You're right. Bill Murray doesn't make movies like this anymore. You could argue that, you know, his career has evolved in a good way. And I can't wait till we get to some of his later movies, Lost in Translation and Rushmore, chief among them. But this is classic early Bill Murray, and he hits it out of the park. And Harold Ramis is phenomenal. Like, he is a great writer and also actor. Like, he is a doofy-looking guy with, like, the huge hair and the giant glasses. I mean, the first time I saw him in Ghostbusters, like, I could kind of relate to that guy, you know? Like, he's a nerd. And here he is, a nerd in this movie, and it's fine. Like, he's good in the army. He gets the girl. Like, it's okay to root for this character. And then you have John Candy, who is just... Perfect. I I think everything he says in this movie is perfect. This movie is super quotable. Like I said, as I'm watching this movie, I'm hearing John Candy or Bill Murray say some of these lines, but in my head, I'm also hearing my dad say them out loud. And speaking of my dad, I feel like he's kind of colored my impression of this movie because the thing he always says whenever we watched it was the first part of this movie is amazing. It's so great. It's so funny. But then when they go to Europe, I hate it. And I was kind of like bracing myself for that, like going into it this time around. And I have to say, dad, if you're listening, I don't know that I really agree with you. Like, it's not as good as the stuff that happens earlier, but it's also not terrible. I think I had it in my head that it was really, really long, you know, like the whole sequence in Europe. And it's not. It goes pretty quick. There's some funny gags. Yeah, I mean, like, maybe it's not as funny as, like, the thing that happens after the inspirational speech in Animal House, where the parade scene is just joke, 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 and it's really, really funny. Maybe the EM50 stuff is less funny than that. But it's still fine. Like, it's still funny. It works. Um, random note on the EM50. I think I mentioned to you when we weren't recording that I had this movie on DVD 
look at what comes in the DVD case. It's a paper EM50 that you can cut out and assemble yourself. It's the lamest DVD insert of all time. It's just like a flimsy piece of paper. Yeah, I mean, like, what are you going to do with that? Who's going to make this into a thing? Um, but overall, I really like this movie. I love watching Bill Murray. I'd watch Bill Murray do anything, man. But I definitely think this movie stands the test of time. Is it perfect? No, but it's pretty damn funny. I guess we're at the end of the show, Al. So uh, should we tell him the surprise now, Al? Yeah, let's tell him. It's the big reveal next week. When we are recording in person, we are going to talk about... Oh, let, let's say it in unison. Okay, let's try to do it. Three, two, one. Back, Back to, to the, the future. future! Oh my God, we're finally going to do Back to the Future. Ah! I mean, we were saving this movie for a special occasion. The fact that we're going to be together in person after a global pandemic, I think that's a pretty special occasion, wouldn't you say? This is special, and we're going to get to do it back in person again next to each other after we eat some pizza, and we're going to have a good time, and you guys are going to join us. Uh, Not for the pizza part. Also, I'm not sure about the pizza. Let's circle back on that. Well, there will be junk food, for sure. Okay, well, there's lots of junk food to choose from at my place. Definitely. I am really excited to watch Back to the Future. I'm really excited to talk about Back to the Future. And I'm really excited to see you in person, James. I haven't seen you in the flesh in over a year. That's crazy. You don't know that I have anything below my neck, really. You know, maybe a few inches of the top of my chest. That's most of what you've seen on Zoom for the last year. You could have giant leg tattoos, or you could, like, have that surgery that um, Gerald Broflovsky had on South Park and, like, turned yourself into a dolphin. Like, you have, like, a, a tail now or something. Maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen your bottom half. I can't have that thing where I put a diamond in my forehead, because then you would have seen that by now. Right, right. It would have to be something, you know, chest level or below. But I'm really excited for next week. I hope you, our listeners, are excited for that episode. Please keep the conversation going. We love hearing from you. Keep talking to us at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And uh, yay, back to the future. Can't wait. Yay. See you guys next week. And see you next week, Al. See you in the future when we'll talk about going back to the future. Ah! Ah!